Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we have another update on the situation in Ethiopia, where a major new federal government offensive has shifted battlefield dynamics yet again. I'm joined by my colleague, William Davison. William is Crisis Group's senior analyst on Ethiopia. Will, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me again, Alan. So this war in Ethiopia, we've had a lot of twists and turns, and the twists and turns uh, continue. So we wanted to have you back on quickly to update us on, on where things stand now on the battlefield after these latest developments. Sure. I mean, I think probably the, the, the major development over the last few months that most of your listeners will be aware of will be some fairly you know, significant gains by the Tigray forces since July after they you know, pushed the federal military out in June. Then they went on the offensive through eastern Amhara. There was a moment at the beginning of November when they took two major towns, Desi and Kambolcha. And after that, they sort of tried to push east to capture the Djibouti road, um, a town called Millet, but essentially seemed to find that too tough going. And then they also pushed south quite significantly from Kambolcha, got to around 150 kilometers perhaps from the capital and seemed poised uh, to launch an attack on Debrebahan, one of the last remaining towns. Um, but since then, really everything has, has changed. Mm. There was a lot of predictions uh, that were made um, and a lot of fears that the TDF, the Tigray forces, were about to march on Addis Ababa, potentially uh, together with the OLA, the Oromo Liberation Army. And and that's where you brought us up towards where they look like potentially on the way towards Addis. So then what changed? It's hard to be sure of, you know, how all the sort of various factors come together. But I think what we know is that because they were you know, a long way south at that point from Tigray, they had quite you know, stretched supply lines, um, relying heavily on this main sort of north-south um, highway known as the A2. And that seems to have got them into trouble uh, because their supply chains, their supply lines started getting hit primarily by drones. Um, so the federal military seemed to acquire some new drone capacity um, and that is believed to have come um, in the form of you know, Chinese drones, Iranian drones from Turkey, and also with the UAE playing a big role, um, perhaps in sort of transporting um, and also perhaps in, in operating. Um, so that seems to have been a big factor. And then also there was this you know, continual, very major effort to popular mobilization by Abiy Ahmed, the prime minister, by other politicians, particularly by Amhara regional government. And I think, you know, increasingly um, the, you know, the Tigrayan commanders faced that aerial threat and then a renewed ground threat. So the, the aerial threat hitting those supply lines. And then also there were some major attacks on their flanks um, at this moment when they were sort of poised to, to try and capture Debra Bahan. So they were they were hit at a place called Gashina, which is to the west um, of, of Waldea, you know, a major town that uh, the, the, the Tigray forces took before Desi and Kambolcha back in August. Um, and they were also hit from the east, sort of around Kambolcha and also a, a town on the Afar um, Amhara border called, called Chifra. Um, so I think it was those were the two the, the two major factors, but there are also some other factors we can talk about. So before we start to unpack all of that, just where do things seem to sit now? You know, despite the fog of war, where are these new front lines? Well, look, I mean, as much as I know now is that the in, in, in the last couple of weeks, there was a very major withdrawal 
um, from the you know, the Tigray leadership. Obviously, they cast this as just minor tactical adjustments, but it was a it was a pretty pretty major rethink. So they've backed out up north. They've maintained control of Waldia, but they've given up on Desi and Kombolcha. So it so it looked like there was a huge amount of momentum building for this federal coalition, and then just subsequent to that, in the last couple of days, we've seen what looks like a counteroffensive from the Tigray forces. So they've taken back this town of Gashina, reportedly, so to the west of Waldia, on on the sort of road towards Bahedar and the Gonda areas in Amhara, and also south of Lalabella, and then they've also walked back into Lalabella rather rather surprisingly because that's quite a sort of sim- symbolically important town really so as as far as we could tell in the last couple of days after you know a, a, a series of very significant reversals the tigray forces seem to have stabilized they're in a much smaller pocket of amhara now but they do also seem to have gone on the the counteroffensive and as usual they're claiming um, huge numbers of opposition and casualties as well Mm. And does it look like these new drones might be a game changer in the long term in as much as, you know, the TDF might not be able to go into the, you know, lowlands in the way that they were before? I think it makes those um, forays along more exposed areas, whether they're main roads or the Afar lowlands or, or some of the flatter areas towards Addis Ababa. Also, potentially the um, the disputed territory of Western Tigray, which is quite flat and exposed, where um, Hara region is in control of, but the Tigray leadership is set on reclaiming. But I think it does present a major obstacle in in that regard. It certainly impacted their efforts to to continue moving south uh, and the effort to control the Djibouti road. So definitely, pretty significant setbacks again when combined with this with this popular mobilization. I guess the question becomes, you know, how sustained will the drone campaign be? It's quite expensive, but then but then that leads to the question, well, how sustained and concerted is, is going to be this support from Abiy's foreign backers, you know, whether it's the Turkish government, Chinese, the, the Emiratis, etc. So yeah, I think that could be a big, big factor as we go forwards. Yeah, let's talk a bit more about that foreign backers. Um, I mean, the timing was obviously quite conspicuous um, in as much as the you know, it looked like there was talk of Abiy's government potentially even falling in some corners. Um, and then this foreign support came in from several locations. Do we have a sense of if any of this was coordinated? Um, do we have a sense about why exactly these governments um, stepped up their support? Um, and was it something that looks like it came very much at the, you know, very recently, um, rather than something that Abiy had been building up for some time and just happened to come online at the last minute? Well, first of all, I think, you know, we're going to really infuriate uh, many supporters of of the of the federal government from the Amhara region, opponents of the the TPLF, if we suggest that this is all down to, you know, to, to some foreign backing in the form of drones, they they believe that you know that the mass uh, popular opposition to the the, the Tigrayans to the TPLF is what's changed the balance here, and and that also reflects the fact that the, that a lot of people bought excessively into you know, what they saw as TPLF propaganda, claiming that the war was over. This 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 type of thing, but I mean. Well, first of all, Ethiopia has always had a pretty pragmatic approach to its foreign policy, as you know. I think you've discussed before on the podcast. You know, good relations with uh, different countries, and so it's it's showing a similar level of sort of pra- pragmatism now. Abby, of course, you know, drones believed to be provided by the UAE were a big factor um, in the initial intervention in Tigray that forced the TPLF from power in November. So this isn't a new thing. But I think what's happened is that you know, faced with the prospect of you know, what many people understandably perceive as a unconstitutional rebel takeover of the constitutionally elected federal government, you know, certain leaders and, and governments 
decided that, that they wanted to come down heavily on the side of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and, and his administration. Um, he made quite a high profile trip to, to Ankara and, and a sort of military financing agreement came out of that. And then we saw Turkish drone exports increase to Ethiopia. Uh, we saw the Chinese foreign minister drop in on, on Addis the other day, presumably to, you know, to, to, to show solidarity with, with that cause. And then I think you know, we've seen at the, U, the UN Security Council, for example, not just Russia and China, but also other states um, showing strong support for Abiy's government, despite um, all of the concerns about Ethiopia's stability and human rights abuses and all the rest of it. So I think there's a fairly simple explanation for this, which is that, well, what people looked at it and whilst they... Uh, might have understood understood some of the grievances on the on the Tigrayan side, and they thought that the best thing to do was to prevent you know a, a, a violent takeover of the government. And, and to be frank, I think that's not, not just a dilemma or not just a decision which is playing out in in these countries we've been talking about. But I think it's also fairly clear that you know, you know, a lot of countries in governments in in Europe and and particularly the US aren't really sure what the best course of action um, has been to take here. And so that's why we all end up saying that we need a ceasefire and, and talks because really you know, whoever can kind of get, get some form of military ascendancy here and even if there's a sort of so-called outright victory it's not clear how that would be good for Ethiopia's future anyway. Yeah and those scenarios that were starting to uh, be played out speculatively about the fall of Addis Ababa were quite terrifying. What we're dealing with there because we, we don't we don't necessarily know like militarily how the fall of, of Addis so to speak is, is going to play out right it would depend upon the circumstances when the intervening when the when these you know essentially insurgent forces tried to take power but you know even if it occurred relatively peacefully which I think is is pretty pretty unlikely well then you would have you know the, the TPLF essentially you know slightly broader Tigray movement, really. But the, the, the TPLF essentially certainly perceived as such. And then the Oromo Liberation Army, you're fairly like at the, the, the far end of the Oromo nationalist spectrum with some pretty strong demands on Oromia's autonomy and Oromia's rights to Addis Ababa. Well, you know, how would that work politically? Because there's no there's no political constituency or political party in Amhara region that would have anything to do with a government that was, you know, that was a represented a violent takeover by by those groups, and then we also have other regional states and and governments such as Somali region, which were essentially saying that they would have nothing to do with such a government. So even if it occurred fairly peacefully, this takeover of Addis, it wouldn't solve Ethiopia's political problems. Mm. So yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, Abiy is a sitting head of state, um, so he can muster these these resources that a non-state armed group can't in terms of uh, foreign backers, but he, you know, does have a lot of domestic support. I think now might be a good time to take another step back and just talk about that level of support that Abi is able to drum up domestically in what is Africa's, you know, second most populous nation. Well, f- first of all, we can look at the uh, election result. I mean, I think the election was was pretty flawed in many ways. Major opposition parties not not competing, intimidating at- atmosphere for other parties. But we did see a huge win for the Prosperity Party, well, just as we saw huge wins for the EPRDF in, in the past. But I think what that does reflect is that, you know, particularly in Addis Ababa, particularly in urban areas, which tend to be more ethnically mixed, and people seeing themselves perhaps more than Ethiopian identity rather than a single ethnic identity, so not uh, ascribing to ethno-nationalist ideologies. There's still, as far as we could tell, seems to be plenty of support for the prime minister. I think that goes to some extent across the country. You have good support in the south. Uh, still you know, concerns in Amhara region about where his federal government has left Amhara exposed to the Tigray attacks, but uh, supported Amhara region, also other 
other urban elites. But what we can also see is that, you know, for example, as has been said many times, you know, this is a an Oromo prime minister. Um, he came to power on the back of the, the protests with people demanding more autonomy for Oromia. And he really hasn't delivered on that as people see it. And he does seem to have lost a significant amount of support in Oromia region. And that's a region of 40 million people. So it is a, it is a, bit, it is a bit of a mixed, a mixed record, I would say. And then I think the other thing to remember, Alan, is that the same point, you know, if I'm talking about the, you know, the Emirati government, let's say, or the Turkish government looking at this scene and saying, well, who do we want to have in power here? You know, do we want the, um, this, this prime minister um, and his elected government or do we want, you know, these, these dissident regional forces from Tigray and, and Oromia? Well, I think many Ethiopians are making that calculation as well. So they might have issues with the prime minister as his rule has developed. They might well have issues with his prosperity party, which in many ways hasn't really developed. They might have many other issues, but they will probably still see the, the prime minister and his government as the lesser of two evils by some distance. Is it fair to say, um, or is it putting it too strongly, that uh, many Ethiopians would view this fight just as existentially as you know the Tigrayans do on the other side? Yes, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I think that's definitely the case in 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 Amhara region. Like not only has the fighting been absolutely almost exclusively concentrated in in Amhara region, other than sort of missile attacks on 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 well um Aerial attacks on Mekele and Tigray and some sort of Tigrayan forays into Afar and, of course, the ongoing insurgency in Oromia. But otherwise, the civil war has been focused in Amhara region. So that's caused plenty of destruction, huge loss of life, also plenty of alleged atrocities against the Tigray forces, similar to some of the accusations that, um, that the Tigrayans were making earlier this, this year. And then there's the sort of bigger picture stuff where this sort of return of the TPLF, the prospect of Tigrayan secession or the, the prospect of a you know a, a, of, a, of a transitional government again one which came to, to power by force with a very strong ethno-nationalist component to it that is seen as a huge threat to to those who believe that that already you know Ethiopia's federal system gives too much autonomy and has too large a role for ethnicity in it so they they do see that as the potential end of of Ethiopia as as a united state so absolutely you know that many of the tigrayans as you know they see this as as a genocidal operation campaign against them and they fear for the survival of their region and, and society and people but yes those similar concerns are held on the other side as well and and those other side the sort of anti-tplf side well especially from the amharic they you know would seem to outnumber the tigrayans in the country um just by sheer numbers so so what's stopping what's stopping the sort of uh ethiopian federal forces from just you know amassing a stronger ground game and not having to rely on this air force uh for part of its military advantage well, I think that, that perhaps a difficult element here is the level of, of sort of motivation. I think certainly a highly motivate, motivated bunch of, of, of fighters have been recruited by the Tigrayans. But I would say that's probably increasingly the case on the other side because of the, the narratives around this war, because of the genuine threat that, that, the, that the country and the, the powers that be face and are a region as discussed. So I think there is quite a lot of motivation on the other side as well. And there has been very significant recruitment so maybe what we're looking at here is just the level of sort of military 
organization really because we can see a huge advantage for the for the state for the federal state and its allies in terms of resources access to the international arms market access to financing trade routes well the Tigrayans enjoy none of that so there's a huge advantage on the federal side there so instead it does seem to be the the level of military organization the strategic thinking and the tactical field thinking by the sort of operational officers which has given the Tigrayans something of of an advantage here and so what do we know about Abi's, you know, mobilization campaign? He he made this big public proclamation of going to the front lines um, and then, you know, encouraged more Ethiopians to sign up. It seemed like that did work to a large degree, right? I think as far as we could tell, it's been it's been relatively successful in terms of numbers. You know, clearly, it's a massive, you know, needs, needs a huge amount of, of resources and, and presents a, a major you know, logistical challenge to recruit and train and deploy that huge number of of new recruits but i think just in terms of sheer numbers again i think particularly and it's been it's been fairly fairly successful i, I don't think you know all the people that they've recruited across oromia maybe parts of the south i don't think that has been you know particularly voluntary i think there has been elements of, of coercion here but you know the, the will have been you know, cash offered that would have been attractive to some people and then i think the way that this has been presented as an existential struggle for ethiopia's survival against essentially an anti-ethiopian in, in in the form of the tplf as it's as it's cast and then because of the popular antipathy to the tplf that existed because of their years at the helm of the ruling coalition since the 90s i think that has led to a fairly successful recruitment campaign okay so what have we learned about the OLA side of this? There was this alliance and still is between the TDF and the OLA. And then it seems like as the TDF pulled back, you know, the OLA sort of withdrew as well. Have we what can we say about their military capacity at this point? I think we can say that they are growing in terms of their support amongst the Oromos predominantly, obviously, that they are increasingly politically relevant. So people are talking about them. People are concerned about them. They have expanded their area of ac- activity geographically. So out of their sort of Western Wologa strongholds and the Guji zones in southern Oromia, they are now operational in areas you know, such as West Shoa, North Shoa, around Addis Ababa. But that tends to be, as far as we can tell, you're mainly occupying rural areas and some, some, some you know, rural towns and then occasional sort of forays attacking larger towns or or briefly controlling major roads so they do seem to be growing but they haven't really as far as as far as we can tell they haven't really developed the sort of military capabilities whether a real threat to major towns whether a real threat um, to Addis Ababa, let alone being a real threat to the power of the regional or, or, or federal government. Okay, so the new lay of the land is we have the the Tigray forces uh, pulled back, but but still quite strong in their own right. Um, a OLA that's that's growing and also aligned against the government, and meanwhile the. The, the federal government is sort of remobilizing, has very strong support, especially from the Amhara, but also some other areas, and is taking advantage uh, of its considerable um, advantages as a as a sovereign government. Um, so, so just taking a step back, I mean, where does this where does this new picture sort of leave us? You think in terms of projecting this this war uh, uh, looking ahead? It obviously uh, continues to look rather bleak. Yeah, that's 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 right, Alan. I think that there's no other way to to look at it. I mean, this is a an almost un, unmitigated disaster for the country, essentially. I mean, you know, obviously, we don't know exactly how this is going to play out, but I think so. The but the ba- the basic concern 
would be that the Tigray forces are are fairly large. I mean, somebody told me the other day that they they you know they put a number of three hundred thousand, uh, but you know we can assume those are massive overestimates, but still a large force and and you know dedicated and well commanded. And really, there isn't much incentive for the Tigray leadership to do anything but cling on to positions in. Amhara, um, and we can we can go into why that is. But the demand on the federal side, of course, is that they return to Tigray before anything can happen. But the danger is that we just see continued devastating warfare across northern Amhara without either side really gaining any sort of decisive upper hand, and so potentially neither side really ever seeing the seeing the need or or finding the the moment to make any sort of concessions necessary to get a real peace process going, and then. You're with the situation in, in Oromia, you know, it's it of course it's slightly it's slightly different, but essentially there just seems to be so much opposition, political energy and focus directed into armed rebellion in Oromia now. And I think the you know what the, the basic problems with, with, with dealing with these armed rebellions is that they seem to have a decent amount of popular support amongst the, the Oromo or the, the Oromia in, in Oromia and in Tigray amongst those constituencies. So it doesn't necessarily look like the federal government and its allies are going to be able to completely eradicate these rebellions because they're popular forces. Just looking ahead, do you have any sense yet, uh, either from your sources or just speculation, what the Tigray forces might be thinking? Um, obviously, there was a strategy of of maybe trying to cut off Addis Ababa um, and, and, and Melee by, by road, um, and then also pushing down to Addis Ababa, and, and those strategies don't look like the way forward. So do you have a sense of, of where they might look next and what they might try to do? Yeah, but before I get to that, why don't I just sort of like, like just like maybe go, go with the, the sort of federal narrative at the moment. You know, that is that the Tigrayans are essentially on, on the run and that they're going to push them back into 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 Tigray. And then I think that the, you know, the, the, the problem presents is that you know, if if the Tigray leadership went back to Tigray without achieving any of their military objectives, obviously that would be like a, a, a complete defeat for them. And so then I think that would put the federal government in an incredibly strong position if we assume the conditions that have to be in place for the Tigray leadership to decide to to, to retreat, that you know, they would be almost fully defeated and, and demoralised. And then I think you know the federal government would, would try and impose a, a peace so that the, those Tigray forces were no longer a security threat to the federal government, to the Amhara region and, and to the Eritrean government. But obviously, those forces are an absolute necessity, as the Tigray leadership and many Tigrayans see it, um, for the region's security. There would also be the issue, issue of Western Tigray. I mean, there is no way the federal government or the Amhara government is making any concessions on Western Tigray, which is Amhara occupied for now, once they force the Tigray forces back to, to, to Tigray. So, you know, and, and, and then, you know, if, if the Tigray leadership did not do the bidding of the federal government, well, what incentive would the federal government have to restore services to Tigray? the banking, the telecommunications, etc., and also the federal budget and, and generally to sort of re-legitimize the region because that would allow the region to build up its 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 armed forces again, which is exactly what the federal government doesn't want. So Tigray would essentially probably end up to some extent still blockaded, uh, possibly still bombarded from, from the air. So that's the reasoning why I don't think that the Tigray forces leadership is going to be looking to make any sort of retreat in, into Tigray. Their plan is of course difficult to, to ascertain at the moment. I think what, what what they're saying and what does sort of fit with the pattern is that you know, they're focused on you know, degrading enemy forces, as they put it. So they say they've retreated into a smaller area that they can defend better. Their supply lines are less stretched, and then they will engage in continued armed confrontation with their opponents. 
that certainly seems to be what's happening over the last couple of days. You will have to see once again you know, what the situation looks like when the smoke clears. But I think we can assume there'll be some very heavy fighting in these areas around Waldea, around Gashena, also further to the north. And then perhaps, then I guess from the Tigray leadership's perspective, they, they hopefully will get in a position where they can launch some sort of more ambitious counteroffensive in the future. Because there's very little point in the long run with them just sitting around in mountainous areas in, in Amhara. That doesn't really achieve their goal. So they would have to push south. They've talked about pushing west into the sort of Amhara heartlands of Gondor and, and Gojam, perhaps trying to uh, venture to try to take back western Tigray, although that is still very heavily defended by Amhara forces, Eritrean and Ethiopian forces. But I think that's the sort of broad contours of, of what they're planning. So let's talk about some of the ongoing um, diplomacy and, and peace processes. Um, there's been, you know, several different initiatives. Um, uh, the Obasanjo one, um, you know, Kenya has been having some quiet diplomacy. There's obviously the efforts under U.S. Uh, Special Envoy uh, Jeffrey Feltman. Um, where do you think this sudden, uh, you know, another twist in all of this um, has has put those various uh, initiatives? Well, the, well, I mean, the way the way that we reacted at, at Crisis Group, I mean, because we were looking at the situation saying, well, it does kind of look likely that these our movements, armed opposition movements are going to march towards Addis. So it looked like the federal government, that the, the ball was in their court to make concessions, right? And, and we were looking at your know, real action to try and facilitate humanitarian relief to Tigray and then you know, big political amnesty to sort of reset the transition, get some of the big Oromo leaders out of jail and back into the political picture. You know, could that start to build trust and get some sort of political process going? As the federal government became ascendant and and the, you know, the, the Tigray forces look to be on the back foot, well, I think we could expect the Tigrayans then to soften their stance. Uh, you know, one, one, one step that could be taken is to reverse the moves made last year during the constitutional electoral dispute and for the, for the Tigray leadership to recognise legitimacy of the federal government, which would actually be a huge step for them. This is where we might expect the international actors to apply their pressure in a scenario where the, the, the federal coalition is is ascendant. But of course, it's going to need all sides to make concessions. It's just a question of sequencing and, and you know, somebody making the first move. I think, you know, without, you know, some sort of promise to uh, reconnect, then, you know, th th then that, that removes their sort of motivation for their offensive to, to overcome the siege. So these are steps that also could be taken. I've mentioned the political amnesty already. And then the really difficult thing comes with the territorial business and, and, the, and the presence of the armed, the armed forces and you know, what, what would sort of which could form a ceasefire. And, and of course, that relates to the presence of Amhara, Eritrean federal forces in Western Tigray and the sort of non-negotiable demand, as they put it so far, from, from Mekele for those forces to leave Tigray. And then, of course, the demand on the federal side for the for the Tigray leadership and forces to, to move out of Amhara. So that would obviously be an incredibly difficult piece of, of, of negotiation, but one that would have to be overcome to get any sort of sustainable peace process going. Mm. Now, the U.S. diplomatic efforts have placed a lot of emphasis, you know, on this uh, Red Sea strategy, as it's often called, engaging with with uh, Gulf countries, especially. Do you think we can judge much from this recent turnaround? Presumably the, the support coming from uh, places like Abu Dhabi and, and Ankara, you know, run against the, the U.S. pressure on these countries to help de-escalate the conflict. It's a di dilemma for everyone about what you know, what can realistically be done to get the Ethiopian protagonists to to shift course here. And I, I do I do sense that the the US has you know taken a sort of slightly vacillating stance where 
you know, they, they want the federal government to make concessions to the Tigrayans because otherwise they see the Tigrayans pushing forward, but then they see the Tigrayans pushing forward as possibly an even bigger disaster for the country and the region in, in, in the long term. So I think that ends up with a sort of a slightly in, ineffective uh, sort of middle ground sort of position. Um, and then, then you know, that's, that's accompanied by other actors uh, being more decisive and saying, well, we're going to support the federal government here. And then they come in with direct military support, which has, a, has an impact on the, on, 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 on the conflict. And so I think we're seeing, you know, the, uh, the limitations of the type of approach that the US is taking, which is a you know, fairly tr- traditional sort of approach in terms of the sort of US-led order, right? So, you know, to call for ceasefire and, and, and talks and call for humanitarian access. It just hasn't really shifted the, the the dial that much and then of course i think we're also seeing the limits of of u.s influence in terms of not you're get, getting its its supposed allies to to uh, to align with it i, I think that probably explains uh, partly partly what's going on we've seen the envoy feltman head to the head to you know, abu dhabi and and ankara this week but of course you know it feels like it could be sort of too little too, too late because this support for the for the prime minister and his government has also has already proved quite significant. But of course, we'll have to see what comes out of the trip. And just quickly on the US angle, is there any sense that some of this foreign support might be coming in precisely because uh, some of these foreign countries see Washington's, you know, very much deteriorating relations with Addis Ababa, with with Abiy, and, um, you know, see an opportunity for influence? Well, I think, you know, I think all of these countries are looking at the situation and making their own assessments. And I think you know, they, 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 they've decided that the best way to stabilize Ethiopia or, or prevent a deterioration is is backing the federal government. I mean, I think that's a decision that people can arrive at without this being part of you know, some sort of opportunism related to the US positioning. I mean, I think that the, the, the difficulty there is that, you know, e- even with a, an, an emboldened and, and strengthened federal government, as I was describing earlier, you know, how, do, how does that really help resolve the political problems that are driving this violence because these armed opposition movements do seem to have considerable support and they certainly think that they have a just cause so it's, it seems like a rather short-sighted view of Ethiopia's stability and of course that is not advocacy for a rebel takeover of the federal government but that is to say that the federal government here also needs to make concessions if we're going to get you know some some sort of negotiated settlement underway. And whilst the federal government um, believes that it can essentially crush these movements, then it is not minded to make those concessions. But I think there is another element to this, though. I mentioned the visit of the, the Chinese foreign minister. There's been quite strong support at the Security Council. And of course, you know, part of the prime minister and his and his government strategy here has been to say that the persistent calls for humanitarian access to be provided by the federal government and naming the restrictions as a blockade um, and on all the criticism of the human rights abuses inside Tigray by the Amhara, Eritrean and Ethiopian forces, as well as the calls for ceasefires and negotiations, which are seen as treating the TPLF, a terrorist organization in the federal government's eyes, as an equal partner. That has obviously led to a, a massive breakdown in Washington Addis relations and a huge campaign by the government to say that you know, part of the problem here is is Western meddling. So undoubtedly, you know, I think as that campaign has gathered strength, and I think in, in its own terms, it's been a fantastically successful propaganda PR campaign. I think that has led to is becoming something of a geopolitical theatre and, and, and you know, further incentivizing some of these governments to support Prime Minister Abiy.
you know, this war is, you know, now barely a year old. It's it's actually a bit hard for me to believe because we've had so many twists and turns. It somehow feels even longer than that. Have we learned any more about what's, you know, the ultimate trajectory for Ethiopia if the sort of worst case scenarios of a civil war dragging on in a much more long-term sense, um, if, if that continues? Um, is it a bit more clearer at all now what that scenario looks like than maybe it was when, when this war started? Well, I think because of the way things have gone, sort of sadly, there is a sort of clearer, clearer path to further deterioration and possible you know, some, some sort of fragmentation here. I think there is already a fair amount of support, of momentum for, for, for Tigrayan independence bid at some point, but that it's impossible to see a peaceful path to that because of the relations between Isaias and the TPLF and also the, the territorial dispute with Amhara. But also I think, you know, the, the, the longer this type of violence goes on, you know, the, the more the, the capacity of the of the state will, will weaken and we will see sort of an increasing strengthening of, of, of armed opposition actors and, 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 and non-state actors. So it is, it is perfect, you know, unfortunately, it's possible to see that sort of path developing should, should the violence continue. And I really think this is what, you know, despite all of that polarization, you know, the terrible bitterness that has been created by the war and the other violent episodes, this is why there's such a necessity for the political leaders at, at this stage to try and put a a stop to and you know to bring these in, in in bring these types of disputes into a sort of much discussed national dialogue type process because I think you know any any effort by either side to impose their vision by force upon the rest of Ethiopia is simply going to lead to incredibly violent blowback you know whether that's the Amhara opposition to a sort of TPLF OLA transitional government or whether it's the continued efforts of the of the federal government to, to crush these fairly popular armed movements, it just seem, seems likely to breed more violence. Hence the necessity for, for everyone to sort of bury, bury the hatchet and, and get some form of peace process going. And it's, it's very hard to imagine, you know, how you can actually have a sort of successful process of negotiation and, and dialogue, given the sort of intractability of some of these disputes. Again, the Western Tigray issue, for example, or just the role of the TPLF in Ethiopian politics. But I think, you know, despite how difficult those discussions would be, they're just sort of infinitely preferable to the course that the country seems to be on at the moment. Okay, thanks, Will, for yet another sobering note. Um, I hope we do not have this same conversation a year from now. Let's hope that 2022 uh, brings something better for the country and, and for its people. Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and this podcast is a production of the International Crisis Group and was produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holinambi.